Romans chapter 4, verse 23 through 25. When you are there, say amen. Go ahead and stand together and let's read God's Word this morning. And let's anticipate what God is going to say to us through His Word. I'm going to actually start with verse 22, and I'm going to read through verse 25. It says, that is why his faith, speaking of Abraham, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, quoting Genesis 15, 6. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trans, uh, trespasses and raised for our justification. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask God to speak to us as I preach on these verses and on the title, Salvation Then and Now. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you would speak to us through it. I pray that you would help me to communicate your word, not merely my ideas, that you would open our hearts, that you would shape us by this text, by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Salvation then and now. I, as somebody who likes history, I always enjoy coming across these posts on social media where you're going to see pictures of then and now. Baltimore City, then and now. Or maybe it is uh, uh, various uh, cultural differences between then and now. Uh, I want to consider this morning as we begin how time and culture so often changes everything, it seems. On entering various countries and applying for a visa, 1,452 travelers were asked, what is the strangest question that you were asked and applying for a visa to enter into a country. One person said that the strangest question they were asked was by one country to describe your mustache and beard before entering. And they had three options, scanty, bushy, and clipped. Another country before entering asked the traveler, have you ever been, or have you been to a farm in the past six weeks? Another country's visa application asked, how many wives do you plan to bring with you into this country? You know, from culture to culture, expectations of entry change. And time does the same thing. According to one book, it was once believed that in order to prevent conflicting demands 
on the circulation of the blood in your body that children should not use their brain for an hour after eating supper. And they also should not read when their feet were cold. You know, too much blood circulating in the brain and it's not going to go down to the feet. Think about the difference, church, just a few decades makes with our expectations. Consider, for example, the difference uh, of college admission requirements to get into schools 100, 100 years ago and how different that would look from today. Or maybe 1,000 years ago to get into some kind of academic institution, the requirements would look so different than they would look today, not even comparable. Now, with all of that said, imagine with me in this evolving society that we live in, imagine with me that there was an institution whose requirements for entry never once changed. Institution, in this case, is probably not even the best word. Imagine with me that there was a kingdom that never changed its requirement or its entry requirements. In this changing world that we live in, what I want to explain to you this morning is that God himself has never changed, and the way that God has saved people has never changed. He never had to step back and say, we need to revamp this. He never had to pause for a moment and say, hey, Trinity, let's come together and have a little brainstorm session because the current way that we're saving people needs to be updated. But God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his method of saving sinners has always remained the same. Well, I could summarize it very briefly. God's requirements for salvation, number one, is that you need to be righteous. God requires human beings to be perfectly righteous, Jesus himself said in Matthew 4, uh, 48. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this leads us to a problem, doesn't it? Because who of us can say that we are righteous? That's why Paul wrote Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul is saying, look, you guys are all rebels against God. Nobody has achieved the standard of God. And he goes on to, to, to prove that in chapter Two, Paul is then building a case to show us that the righteousness of God and God's righteous requirement for us to get into the kingdom of heaven leads us to know that we need a Savior. And so then by the time he gets to Romans chapter 3, what he shows us is that first we are all fallen short of the glory of God verse 23, and then leads us to look at Christ. And he says, this is why we're saved not by works, but through faith as a gift. So the last bit of my summary here is God requires righteousness. We're not righteous. Last bit is Jesus is righteous. And God 
gives us his righteousness as a gift simply because we turn to him in faith. Then Romans chapter 4, which we're finishing today, is Paul's exposition of one verse, Genesis 15, 6, where he looks all the way back to Abraham. And he says, look at Abraham's life. Abraham, he says, according to Genesis 15, 6, had faith in God, and his faith, he says, was credited to him as righteousness. Look at verse 22. He says this is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. What he's saying is, is look at Abraham. Abraham was, was saved before, he was counted as righteous before he ever did one good deed. Before Abraham was circumcised, God had counted him righteous. Before Abraham ever obeyed God, God counted him as righteous. Before the nation of Israel ever became a thing, God had already counted Abraham as righteous. Based on what? What he's told us in chapter 4 is that it was totally based on the fact that Abraham turned to God in faith and trusted God. It's as if God is saying, you're not righteous, really. But I am crediting your faith as perfect righteousness. So then he gets to verse 23, and the Apostle Paul, as he's writing, he says, he says, but the words it was counted was not for his sake alone. He says, but, but there is, is, is to cause us to pause for a second, and he's turning a corner to application. What he's telling us in verse 23 is basically this. He's saying, before you tune me out and get bored on this whole historic Abraham stuff, before you think that I'm just getting all theological on you and talking about ancient history, he says, but I want you to know that this is not just about Abraham, but this is about you. You need to be righteous before God, and God has made a way for you to have righteousness through God, crediting your faith as righteousness. Now, this is my one, two, three, four, fifth sermon talking about justification by faith. I don't know if you've noticed that, but this has kind of been our theme for the last over a month, that you are saved not by works, but by faith. All right, that's what we've been talking about. Why does this matter? Why are we yet again talking about how we are made righteous before God? You know, the urgency of the moment often feels as if it, we, we ought to be discussing something else. The urgency of the moment often demands that we discuss everything else but things like this. You know, when we think about everything that we've been praying about and talking about this morning already with another school shooting, you know, we need to be talking about how to keep our kids safe. We need to be talking about uh, what's going on in culture that is creating this 
sort of these sort of monsters, uh, what's, what's happening in our society that leads uh, people to terrorizing the most vulnerable. With uncovering uh, uh, sexual abuse in ministries, we need to be talking about what's underlying all of this, what levels of perversion and power need to be dealt with. You know, even in our own city, there, is, there are things that need to be talked about. There was a, a young man that was to turn 18 today, I saw in the news, and he was killed in, the, in a harbor last night, the night before his birthday. And then even beyond the bad things that we could be talking about, there's so many good things that are like felt needs in our life that we could be talking about. Uh, things, things like how to uh, apply for a job and, or get a really great job, or uh, how, to, how to think about dating and marriage, uh, how to find a spouse, or uh, uh, how, to, how to be a better parent, or how to be more involved in your community. My point is, is this, is like if I were to put out a survey and I were to say, hey, everybody, go ahead and write on this survey, like, what are the hot topics that Joel should talk about this Sunday? I don't think anybody, well, I shouldn't say, I, I think it's unlikely that any of us would write down justification by faith alone. But you would. <laughs> Praise God. But you get what I'm saying? Like, it, it, it's, it doesn't feel like, man, like, this is really the thing that we ought to be talking about today. You know, one of the challenges for an expositional preacher who wants to just preach the Word is to believe that the Bible is actually what people need. Are you with me? It's to believe that what God has emphasized and has spoken in His Word as it's laid out in Scripture, that that right there is actually what we need. And as I've been studying this text again on justification by faith, again, and thinking about matters of the fact that we're not saved by works, again, and thinking about the fact that we are, our, our, our faith is credited to us as righteousness, again, I am reminded, again, that this actually is to be our priority. As a matter of fact, the question of how a, a sinful human being can be made right with a holy God is the most important question any of us can ask. And I would say this, all other questions and applications in society flow from how we understand the answer to that question. Meaning we can't talk about being right with fellow man unless we understand how we can be right with God. And that's what we're talking about today. And what I'm telling you is this, it's salvation then and now, all right? It has never changed. That God is not going to revamp it on us and come up with a different way. But that God has revealed in his word from the beginning that we can be saved, that we can be made right with God, that it's not an automatic for every single human being. But there is a way that is open to every single human being. And that's what we're going to look at again.
Are you with me? Again? Let's look at it. Again. I promise I won't keep saying again. But salvation doesn't change. The methods of salvation doesn't change. The faith doesn't change. And the plan doesn't change. Let's get into it. Number one, the method doesn't change. The method has never changed. Verse 23. But the words, he says, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. What he's saying is his salvation then and now hasn't changed. He didn't just say this for Abraham. He's not just saying to Abraham the way that God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness, that that was just like a one and done for Abraham. He doesn't want us to read this story and say, oh man, that was so cool how God saved Abraham by faith alone. But he's saying, it's not just about Abraham, but this is about us. This is about you. This is about how God saves you. It, in verse 23, it was counted to him. What is the it? It's righteousness, exactly. So the righteousness of verse 22 becomes the it of verse 23. So righteousness was counted to him. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6 is what he's been expounding on. This is the heart of the gospel here. That, that God counts our faith as righteousness, as a gift. This is so big, I need to give you a couple different analogies so that we can wrap our minds around it. And all of these analogies probably fail. They do fail somewhere. But please entertain me uh, nonetheless and let me try to explain this to you. Tomorrow is my wife's birthday. And thankfully she stepped out so I can talk about her. Oh, there she is. Never mind. I gotta, I gotta change something here. Okay. Had to edit it. <laughs> Tomorrow is my wife's birthday. And, you know, my wife requires a nice meal on her birthday. It's just a requirement, all right? Let's say that tomorrow I do 100% of the work and I grill up some nice steaks and I, I roast some asparagus and I, I make a, 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 a baked sweet potato. You know, it's all got to be healthy because you know Jess. <laughs> baked sweet potato. And I do all the work, and I sit down, and, and, I, and I meet her birthday requirement. Some people believe that's how we get saved. That God has a requirement of righteousness in order for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that it's up to us to do 100% of the work. That we got to get into the kitchen of self-righteousness and start whipping up some obedience. And then we bring all that together and we say, God, here is my spread. Is this acceptable to you? And God says, that is miserable. You see, this isn't the way salvation works. We are not saved by what we do because we can't do anything that is actually pure and righteous in the eyes of God. All right, so then some people might say, well, maybe it's 50-50. All right, so going back to my analogy. Let's say that tomorrow on my wife's birthday, she says, Joel, you know, you're pretty good with steaks, but I'll, I'll take care of the asparagus. As a matter of fact, I'm going to do something on the steak here. 
And by the way, I'm doing the baked potatoes, all right? It's a 50-50 sort of arrangement. We work together in the kitchen, and we come up with a spread. Some people think this is how salvation works. You know, some people would say, well, yeah, certainly God forgives me my shortcomings. I ain't perfect. I got my demons in the closet. God, God knows that. God forgives some things. But God still requires me to do my best effort. I still got to put my best foot forward. And so I'm saved 50% by God's grace and 50% by my own doing. We're working together with God now in the kitchen. Well, is this how salvation works? Absolutely not. Listen, why? It's because you are making more of a mess in the kitchen than you're doing anything good. And the reason that you stay in this kitchen of self-righteousness is actually because of your pride. You will never be saved believing that you offer, that you bring something to the table that you can somehow earn a place, even 50% in the kingdom of heaven. So how are we saved? Well, let's go back to my analogy. Let's say that tomorrow my wife looks at me and she says, Joel, you know you can't cook. And I want you to know that I have already prepared the steak, and I prepared the roasted asparagus, and I prepared the baked sweet potato with all of the toppings, and it's already placed out on the table with a candle lit. I am going to ask you to sit down with me at the table, and you sitting down with me at the table, I will count that as you meeting my birthday requirements. As if you did all of the preparation on your own, which you could not do. And I sit down and receive her grace and love. You see, righteousness that is imputed to us, that's given to us, is not fictional. It's not as if God is just saying, I'm going to pretend as if there's righteousness. No, church, there is actual righteousness. It's just not coming from you. It came from Jesus, actual righteousness of Christ, and God has taken the sinner in faith, placed him in Christ, and said, based on your faith, you're sitting down at the table with Christ, and all of his righteousness, all of his perfections that I require for you to get into the kingdom of heaven are given to you. And you actually have the righteousness of Jesus. 100% his work received by faith through grace as a gift. Amen? Well, I can cook. I just want you to know that. But I can offer nothing to God. Just a dinner to my wife. My point is that your, your, your faith isn't what is righteous. You know, it's not as if faith is like some kind of like moral thing that you bring to the table. The righteousness is actually the righteousness of Christ. 
It's God's own righteousness. Your faith is merely sitting down at the table. Your faith is merely saying, yes, I receive Christ. And he gives you his righteousness. Now, the the big point that Paul's after in this verse is to show us that God's method has never changed. That this is the way that God has always saved sinners. And he shows us even going back 4,000 years to Abraham. And he still saves people the same way today. And church, it is offered to you. Have faith in Christ. And God will save you. Now that leads me to my second point though. Is that the requirement of faith has never changed. All right, so, so uh, the method never changed, but secondly, the requirement never changed. What is the requirement? Well, look at the text in verse 23. Let's go back. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted, look at this, to us, read it, who believe. Are you with me? Amen. It will be cr- counted to us who, here's the clarifying Uh, factor who believe who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord we see here in this verse number one the recipients of justification and that is those who believe those who have faith but two we see the object of faith Who are we having faith in? And that is him who raised Jesus from the dead. Let's let's start with that one. Let's start with the object of our faith. Notice, it's not God in general. You know, some people say, oh, well, I, I definitely know I'm going to heaven. I believe in God. Yes, I, I know that my, my mother is, is a Christian. She believes in God. We have to pause and ask ourselves, which God are we talking about? When you say God, who are you talking about? He doesn't just say those who believe in God. He says those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Meaning other religions would claim to believe in God. And this kind of thinking is what leads even some within the church to say that it doesn't matter what religion you're part of, as long as you believe in God, you'll be okay. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible specifies who we're talking about when we talk about believing in God. Spiritualists might come along and say, well, I don't really know exactly who or what God is but I believe in God. I believe that there is a God. I worship this God. But who, is, who are we talking about? Are you with me? Yeah. You see, according to the Bible, there's only one God. And this one God has revealed to us who He is. And God requires us to believe that which He has revealed. Now, this is a very helpful theological statement right there. Because Abraham could not tell you all of the details about Jesus that we know. He couldn't have explained to you that there was going to be a cross and that three days later 
right? There was a lot of details that Abraham just saw through shadows. Like, what was the shadows? What was the mountain he saw far off in the distance that we now know is Jesus? It was this, that he believed that God could raise the dead. Well, why does God require us to believe in Jesus and all the details, but he didn't require that of Abraham? It's a simple answer. It's because God requires of us to believe what he has revealed. And up to the time of Abraham, there's a lot of the story that God had yet to reveal. So Abraham, like us, believes the word of God. He trusts in God. And we know now that Abraham was indeed trusting in the Christ that is to come, though he couldn't specify all the details. Well, let's fast forward now. This side of Christ, it's not enough to just simply believe that there is a God who can do something about dead people. Because God has revealed to us the whole of the gospel in Christ. And so what God requires us to believe is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, buried, and raised from the dead. We need to know all that God has revealed and trust His Word. This is called in theology progressive revelation. It's that at every stage of God's revelation, He requires us to believe it. And now that we have the whole, we're required to believe the whole. Are you with me? And so that's what Paul's saying here, is, is that it's required of us to believe in Him who raised the dead from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. But the second piece I want to emphasize is that you must believe this. That this must be your personal faith. Uh, so, some weeks ago, we, we went skating. We went roller skating down at Shake and Bake with the church. And I had uh, Chapman on roller skates. And, you know, he's like falling all over the place. And you know how little four-year-olds are. And so then at one point, I, I took him by his arm, and I kind of propped him up, and he put his skates like this, you know, and I just went all the way around, uh, did a loop with him. And, you know, he's like, ah, like hanging on to me, like completely relying on me, looking at his mother like, see, I'm skating, <laughs> you know? It's like, no, you're not. But that was cute, you know? Listen, some people have that mentality when it comes to faith. Like, I don't really have any faith myself. I'm just propped up by my dad's faith. Here's my point. Your grandma's faith won't get you to heaven. You can't stand before God and God look at you and say, you've got no faith. You had no trust in me. And you start with saying, well, my, my, my grandmother, my grandfather, they were God-believing, God-fearing people. Listen, you can't get into the kingdom of heaven simply because you attend a church that's faithful where a lot of people have faith. It's got to be your faith. It's got to be your personal faith. Are you with me? And for many, here's the thing. For many of us, our faith will be tested on this earth. And you will know whether or not it is your personal faith or whether or not you've just been going around this thing propped up by somebody else's faith clinging to them. Well, have you ever heard of the refiner's fire? 
This is, this is where God comes and tests our faith through trials and tribulations. I once knew a woman who uh, was very involved in church. She seemed to be a person of great faith. She was leading children's ministry and very active in many ways. And in her, her older years, I, I, I went and visited her in the hospital, uh, and, and she, she had developed some kind of disease. This is years ago. I don't remember what it was. I was a youth pastor at the time. Went and visited her. She had this disease that was causing pain all over her body and all through her body. She was just laying in the hospital bed in utter pain, and I felt terrible for her as she had tears coming down her face. And then she said these sort of haunting words. She said, I could never believe in a God that would allow me to go through this. I do not have any faith in this God. And I remember just hearing those words thinking, wow, her faith didn't make it through the refiner's fire. The trials, the tribulation, the sickness, the pain came, and she was, she's being shown right now to have no faith. You see, going through the refiner's fire of trials and tribulation and pain and all of the, all of the above, church, what it does is it shows whether or not you have real faith. Going through that one day, which you likely will, will your faith come out and be, be shown to be pure gold? Strong, solid faith that you've built your life upon? Or will it just be shown that we've been clinging to the coattails of other faithful people, propped up by the faith of our grandma, by the faith of your father, by the faith of your friends, by the faith of your other church members, but never really had faith in the risen Savior yourself? Young people in the room, this applies to you as well. One day you will stand before God without your father and without your mother, alone. And all you will have is faith in Christ or the lack thereof. Is this your faith? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Well, as we continue in this, what we see then is what we have faith in as we're, as we're talking about this. What does it mean that we have faith in Jesus as he closes? As he closes in verse 25, he says, Jesus, now he clarifies what he's talking about. This is, I love how Paul is because he talks too much, just like I do. He's got he's to clarify everything. He says Jesus, and then he's got to say, I've got to tell you who Jesus is. Jesus who, verse 25, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. He was delivered up. Delivered up. Not merely by Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. He was delivered up. Not merely by Pontius Pilate who handed him over. He was delivered up. Not merely by the crowds who, who shouted, crucify him. But Jesus, according to the scriptures, was delivered up by God himself for a certain purpose, for the forgiveness of our sins, so that he might do the battle that we could not do, and that is deal with our guilt. You see, Isaiah 53.10 says, yes, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. This is why. 
when we get to the end of the Bible and we're reading Revelation, and we get to Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, we're told that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the creation of the world. What? I thought he was killed 2,000 years ago. But we get to the end of the Bible and we're told that he was the lamb slain before the creation of the world. Meaning before there was ever a plant on this earth, before God ever created Adam, God already had a plan to deal with the sin of Adam. And that was that God's own son would come as the redeemer to live the life that you should have lived and that I should have lived. To have all of that perfect righteousness and to be the one perfect atonement for our sins, to hang in our place and to die for our trespasses. To take our guilt upon himself, to take our punishment upon himself. It was God who delivered him up. Look at the poetic nature of this verse. He says, he was delivered up for our sins. And he was raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Scholars point out the liturgical element of these two lines. That Paul likely is either writing some kind of liturgical element that is to be quoted in the churches or even uh, some kind of statement of faith that the churches had come up. Even our own statement of faith Uh, in in our own church reads very similar based on this verse. In our statement of faith, under the person and work of Christ, it says, Christ accomplished our redemption through his death on the cross as a representative vicarious substitutionary sacrifice and that our justification is made sure by his literal physical resurrection of the dead. So on one hand, we're reading this and it's like this beautiful kind of liturgical element of he died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. But it's also an interesting question to ask. What does it mean that he was raised uh, for our justification? Because the Bible also tells us that he died for our justification. Like didn't in his death he accomplish our right standing before God? So what does our resurrection say about our justification? Why does he in particular call out the resurrection as it relates to our right standing with God? Well, I think he's simply saying this, that Jesus died because of our sin, and Jesus was raised for the sake of our our, our justification, our being made right with God. Meaning, when Jesus got up from the dead, The work that he had accomplished on the cross was proven to work. Meaning God was satisfied with what Jesus had done three days prior on the cross. He achieved our salvation. When he got up from the dead, we see that God accepted his gifts. The resurrection of Christ shows us that God approves then of all people who put their faith into Jesus Christ. The resurrection shows us that in his death, in his burial, that he has reversed death. 
and that those who trust in him are raised to newness of life and made right with God because he satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, reversing death. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. I mean, don't you understand then? What we're saying here is that salvation is to be raised to new life. Now, spiritually, we are raised to new life as we are given faith and love for God, but one day our bodies will be brought back to new life and brought into the kingdom of heaven as God recreates the world and we reign with him as co-heirs for all of eternity. Family, we are saved by faith alone in the work of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In 1941, German forces attacked British towns. It was called Lightning War as towns of civilians were were attacked through a campaign of aerial bombing. I read a story of one father who was running from a, a, a building that had been bombed and he was holding the hand of his young son and seeing a a shell hole, the father jumped into the hole to protect himself from the fire, and he held out his arms for his son, and he shouted up to his son to come after him to jump. But as the smoke filled the air, and as the buildings were burning, the father continued to yell, seeing just the silhouette of his boy. And he hears his boy say, in fear, in terror, He says, I can't jump because I can't see you. And the father, as the story goes on, shouts back to the boy, jump because I can see you. Saints, don't you understand that God has given you his word? And you say, but I can't see him. Abraham could have said, I I, I believe, I, I hear the word, but I can't see God, and so therefore I can't have faith in him. I can't trust him because I can't see how this is all going to pan out. I can't see how Jesus is going to come and die for my sins, so therefore I can't have faith. And even now, you know, 2,000 years later, we are on this side of the cross, but like Abraham, we still can't see physically Jesus nail prints in his hands. We can't physically with our eyes see the stone rolled away and get it, Jesus get up from the dead. And don't you understand, church, the Bible says that we walk by faith, not by sight. Meaning our faith is not determined whether or not we get a visual on the Father. The question is, will we trust his word? Do we know his word? Do we understand his word? Do we consume his word? And as we hear even the the, the essence of salvation in these three verses, do you believe his word and will you jump into the loving arms of your father? Oh, this is not just some cold, distant kind of faith. John Calvin said faith is not a distant view, but a warm embrace of Christ. As we walk by faith and not by sight, what we see, not with physical eyes, but with eyes of faith, 
is Christ. And we warmly embrace Christ. And as we jump church, we are assured that God has caught us. That we are justified by His grace as a gift. That God has counted our faith as perfect righteousness. That God has brought us to the table of His redemption and invited us to sit down based on our faith in Him. Based on the work of Christ applied to us. And we jump into His arms. Praise God for His grace. Amen. Praise God for His work. Praise God for the fact God has done 100% of the work for us. And we receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God, I pray that nobody would walk out of here without placing their faith in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That we might believe in you, the God who raised Jesus from the dead and receive his perfect righteousness in our own account based on our faith or through our faith based on your grace as a gift. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.